When Christians are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and when we are sealed with oil in the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever, a new journey begins. The baptized person is a resurrected person, dead to separation from God and truly alive in Christ a child of God and an inheritor of redemption and great joy. So how is your baptism going? It's not just an abstract idea, a social status or a nice thing that happened once. Our baptism is an invitation to God to put us to work in the real world. Our job as baptized people is to receive God's love and to reflect it wherever we go and whatever we do. How often does that occur to you? A daily practice of prayer can keep our baptism top of mind so that it can better inform our actions. And our actions can reflect God's love in many different ways, both intimately and broadly. This Tuesday is election day. If you haven't voted yet, I hope you'll drop that ballot into your mailbox or a ballot drop box tomorrow. Why? Because voting is one crucial way that we can reflect God's love on a broad scale. As the citizens of a representative democracy, we are the employers of our government. We choose who will represent us, but we don't cede our voice between elections. We organize to bring greater freedom and justice to our society. As Dr. Cornell West said, justice is what love looks like in public. But don't take my word for it. Look to the Bible. Our holy scriptures feature all sorts of politically powerful people. From Joseph, to Moses, to Deborah, to David, to Solomon, to Josiah, to Belshazzar, to Cyrus, to Esther, to Herod, to Pontius Pilate, to Nero. The four beasts in Daniel's vision today are most likely the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. Four successive conquerors of the Jews who despite their power must eventually submit to God's will. Today's psalm is a patriotic, if saber-rattling, ode to God as the true king above all nations. Our reading from the letter to the Ephesians places Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Some say that the church should stay out of politics. Others say that the church belongs squarely in the realm of politics. I'd like to attempt to make peace about this by asserting that Jesus Christ is both political and beyond political, both earthly and transcendent, as we see in Luke's gospel. This series of sayings of Jesus we just heard are named from the Latin as the Beatitudes because of the refrain, blessed are you. Here, we cannot avoid experiencing Jesus as a political figure. This is especially true the more we learn about Jesus' political context 
in which the Jews lived under ongoing Roman occupation and different Jewish political parties, if you will, held different assumptions about the best way to handle that state of affairs. Jesus settled for none of the common party platforms. He didn't want to overthrow the Romans in a bloody revolution, but neither would he make peace with oppression. He wouldn't retreat into the desert to escape the Romans, but neither would he merely keep his head down and follow the rules. Jesus showed us that none of these approaches holds the path to abundant life. Instead, he started a new movement based on the assumption that God is the ruler of the world right now, regardless of the apparent political regime. The Beatitudes are our declaration of interdependence, our Christian manifesto. Depending on how you look at them, the Beatitudes can seem naive or threatening. They point to the world as it should be, and they invite us to live in that ideal world today. They make clear that violence is not a virtue for Christians, but neither is undignified victimhood. Jesus did not place his faith in government to protect us from harm, but in God, who offers us joyful life in community despite any harm that may come. Jesus asks us to trust, way beyond our comfort zone, that God is in charge through death and beyond. Jesus was killed for his political nonconformity. But because of Jesus' resurrection, which we see as the blueprint of all creation, we pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ, the icon of the invisible God and a revealing of God's very self. It's easy enough to understand Jesus as a political figure in his own time and place, but can you see Christ as a political figure in our own time? Look beneath the civil rights movement in our country, liberation theology in Central America, and South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Look to the Kairos Center's Poor People's Campaign in the U.S. today. You will find the Beatitudes at work. The Beatitudes stand against oppression, to be sure, but they also stand against any political system that we might place above Christ. Christianity is about freedom, yes, but not freedom for the sake of capitalism or socialism or libertarianism. No, Christian freedom is for the sake of mutual love and beloved community, a reality without lies, without bigotry, without violence, and without coercion. Among Jesus' followers were upstanding citizens and prostitutes, blue-collar workers and, healthy and wealthy benefactors, freedom fighters and blood traders. Likewise, the Jesus movement of today aligns with no party affiliation, no economic school of thought, no political entity, and no school of conventional wisdom. Many Christians will tell you otherwise, but if they do, their Christianity is too small. 
The followers of Jesus exist as a society within whatever other societies we may be a part of. Wherever our rulers fall on the spectrum of socialism to fascism, capitalism to communism. This kind of talk might make us nervous. Maybe it should. But if we truly follow Christ above all political figures, we need to have some understanding of what that means. First of all, I think it means we vote. And I think it means that regardless of how you choose to vote, and no matter what happens on election day, there is ample cause for hope. Why? Because our call as Christians is always clear. The political cause of Christians is to reflect truth, love, justice, and mercy. To live generously because of these things and to inspire others to do so as well. The political opponents of Jesus are those who work against truth, against love, against justice, against mercy. If that sounds both vague and black and white, well, maybe it is. It demands all our critical thinking and prayerful discernment. Second, we must never attempt to stay in a black and white place by dividing the world into allies and enemies. We frequently act in both roles, depending on how we are aligning ourselves with love today. Our aim is not to vilify our political opponents or even our sworn enemies. Jesus urges us to love them, and pray for them. So also, we seek healing for those underdeveloped or unhealed parts of ourselves that make reconciliation difficult to offer or to accept. When people see Christians as good, it should not be because we live perfectly or correctly or think all the right things, but because we live wholeheartedly. We make a perpetual practice of giving our money, our time, our energy to help others. Our aim is to give even when our doubt begins to erode our trust. We give because giving is a clear way of demonstrating God's love at work in us. When people see Christians as threatening, it should not be because we are violent, but because we will place ourselves between hostile systems and those who are harmed by them. It is in this spirit that Jesus parallels every blessed are you with a woe to you. For the Christian, being full and rich and laughing and respected can never be the goal and may even enable our most fearful habits. We cannot redeem ourselves, but we can respond to God's redemption of us with love, becoming better people over time for the sake of everyone else in the world, yet accepting forgiveness again and again. This is the heart of Christian maturity. We take political stands in the world because we march under the banner of love and want to see it advance. Acting out of the Beatitudes and our baptismal covenant, we are to work for God-given dignity and rights for everyone. We do this work both with and without the help of our government. We understand that freedom is not an excuse for selfish living. 
Freedom is a condition of having real choices in life, something that isn't possible for those whose basic needs are not being met. And because we want to ensure such freedom, not just for ourselves, but for those to whom freedom is routinely denied, Christians work for social justice. Now, none of us can see the full picture, so we will arrive at different conclusions about the best ways for our society to move toward justice. But Christians trust that God will love us through it all. We listen, we learn, we reason, we pray, and then we act in good faith based on what we understand. We pursue social justice every time we stand in solidarity with and honor the dignity of the poor, the hungry, the grieving, the excluded, and the reviled. Today, we celebrate the Feast of All Saints. The saints are all the members of the Jesus movement who have gone before us. You see their names hanging from Jesus' arms today on this ribbon. Through our baptism, we join their vast number. So how is your baptism going? Are you moving in the direction of Christian maturity? Are you relying on others to help you? What role does your vote play in revealing and reflecting God's love to the world? Remember that God and God alone is the instigator of your redemption, the giver of all revelation, and that God started this process in all of us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is the ruler. No earthly rulers are worthy of our unflagging devotion. This is important just before the election. None of us needs to run away to Canada next week. Why? Because there is no place or time where Jesus is not Lord. And in response to Christ's redeeming love, there is work to do right here. And we are the ones to do it. Rejoice. Rejoice.